Mustang Alpha 5, dust off 3100. Five, Roger. Roger, it's 3-1. We should be in your location at about zero two. Could you throw smoke for us now, over? Welcome to Karen to Fire, where the scene isn't safe and we all forgot our BSI. I'm your host, Aaron. My first guest is uh, Robert Simmons. He's a combat medic who joined the Army in 1996. He uh, retired in 2016. How are you doing today? Doing good, man. Doing good. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. Uh, I mean, Simmons served together from, what, 2014? Yeah, 2014. 2014 to 16. Yeah, Fort Campbell. So I like to ask all medics, the very first question I asked, I had a first sergeant that I always wanted to know what your Army story was. Why did you join the Army? But what I want to know is why did you become a medic? When you walk through that recruiting station doors, how did you wind up a medic? Well, I originally enlisted as an x-ray tech. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, some stories just aren't worth telling. <laughs> so I enlisted as an x-ray tech and went through uh, basic at a good old Fort Lost in the Woods. Bus down to San Antonio, did 91 Bravo training as it was back in the day. And then I went up the hill to uh, 187 and uh, made it about halfway through x-ray tech training and uh, I got in trouble for fighting at the PX while I was there. I lost my PX privileges for a year. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. Yeah well anyways so being that uh, you had more freedoms up at 187 or 18 yep. heaven as it used to be called I decided to mess around too much and I failed too many tests and when it came time to decide whether I could get recycled or not, because of my incident at the PX, they, they told me no. And if they had the choice that I'd have been gone, but be, but I already had the training as a medic. So I just re, re uh, reassigned as a medic. Okay. So y'all were back in the day. Everybody went through 91 Bravo training first. Then you split off to your training. The, I think uh, the only ones who didn't go through 91 Bravo training first were mental health specialists. Do you remember about how long your, the medic training was? The Bravo 10 training? weeks. You all didn't get your national registries. You could get your national registry if you if your grades were high enough. Unfortunately, again, I was I was a bit of a troublemaker before <laughs> I joined, and so making grades wasn't the first priority in my mind. But you could go for your national registry if your grades are high enough. Uh, you could you could pay to take it if you wanted, but my right. grades were weren't that high, and I was like, I'm not going to pay to fail something. So, and it wasn't a requirement at the time. Yeah, like it is now. Yeah. And then, so, yeah, that's pretty much it. Did 10 weeks, and plus we didn't have, uh, we didn't go to the hospital for a rotation or anything like that either. As far as the training went, because I tried to look it up, the first instances I can find of TC3 being implemented was in 1996. They said they published the TC3 guidelines in a military medical supplement. Were you all taught the principles of TC3, nope. or you never heard it? I didn't hear about TC3 until after my first deployment to Iraq. Okay. so. So now knowing what you know about TC3, how is your training different than kind of what we did? So, you know, you have all those uh, great acronyms that, you know, stop the hemorrhaging first and all yep. that stuff. Dude, when we went through, it was still airway bleeding circulation. Make sure they have a maintain an open airway, control the bleeding, make sure they have circulation. That was pretty much the gist of it. You You went and checked on an airway, and if they didn't have one, you were trained to to uh, open the airway, but you know, and then later on, it, everybody in the world realized yep. why open the airway if they're bleeding. <laughs> so as far as bleeding control, were y'all using improvised tourniquets? We learned to make, we learned to make improvised tourniquets out of anything we could find. Okay. So there weren't the, you didn't have the cats, you didn't have the soft tea, you didn't have any mm, of that yet. We had, we had cravats and sticks. Okay. So we'll roll right into that because you said you didn't hear about it until after your first deployment. So when and where was your first deployment? My first deployment was actually to Baghdad in 2006 to 2008. Okay. And you still hadn't heard of TC. So it was about what, 10 I mean, years? I might, I might have heard of TC3, but it, it, when it first, when TC3 first came out, when, when what I recall of it yep. is uh, we were still calling it Combat Lifesaver Course. Yep. So that might have been, I can't remember, because even all the way up until Baghdad, we were still teaching people according to the standards to do IVs, yep. which if, if I recall correctly, they took that out of TC3 for it's, some part. They took it out of CLS. So I want to say yeah. we took that out of CLS in 2013, 2014. I'm not sure exactly when, but that was because 
there were so many missed IVs. Yeah. You, you saw how bad it was trying to get a <laughs> or an IV well, sometimes. It wasn't just that, too. They were given, they were given the, what was that, IV fluid? Hex or the major? Yeah, hex yep. A lot of people were just grabbing the wrong fluids. And oh, yeah. It's completely understandable. Yeah, so do you feel like, did you feel like a competent combat medic when you walked out of Fort Sam and walked into your first, was the CAV your first unit? No, actually, my first unit was a Heidelberg medical activity in Heidelberg, Germany. Oh, so you went to a clinic first. I went to a hospital first. Okay, I'm sorry, a hospital. Yes, so I actually went there, and funny enough, one of my, well, oddly enough, one of my favorite places, uh, I actually went straight to labor and delivery there. And as weird as it sounds, as a as a combat medic, Labor and delivery, I think, tested me more than most other things I went through in my career. All right. So what were you allowed to do as a 91 Bravo? Were you actually allowed to assist in deliveries, help set up IVs? I actually, uh, one of the docs actually let me deliver a baby from beginning to end. I, obviously, he was over my shoulder. We did the IVs. I think I, if you think about uh, a whole delivery process, it, the uh, the only thing I was not allowed to do was check for cervical dilation because obviously, you know, that's just not something anybody wants someone training (laughs) on how to do it. And then I was not able to, I was not allowed to put a catheter into a pregnant female. So do you feel like this was just because of the doctor you work for or did you, or all medics allowed to work at that level? Well, different doctors had different ideas of what we should, should be allowed to do while we were there. The doctor that let me deliver a baby was actually a German national doctor. He wasn't even a U.S., but he, w- he worked for the U.S. government mm-hmm. in the hospital. And he felt that anybody, anybody that worked in the delivery room should be able to do every part of the job. Oh, you like work one up, teach two down that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, sense. but, but, so when you think about it, you're in there, especially the one I got to deliver was a uh, preemie. And so he, we had him, we had an actual pediatrician in the room. And then obviously we had massive amounts of nurses and me and one other medic. The other medic was like, literally, this was the first delivery they were actually watching. This was like my 20th at, at the time. And he walked me through step by step and it it, it was an amazing experience, you know, obviously it's, it's very different from even watching your own children get born yeah. is to help actually deliver the baby. But so we had to know just about everything that you should know to be in that room, um, all the different surgical instruments, how to turn the baby around in the uterus if, <laughs> of their if breach. you know, yeah, for a breach or, and there were some, there were some weird ones. There were some that weren't even breaches. I think one of my favorite stories is uh, a baby was, they were delivering a baby and it was coming out where the chest was flat and the shoulders were getting hung up on the inside trying to come out. And the doctor pulled up these special baby, they, we call them baby forceps. Yep. And so they, they, they clamped around like this and they would go around the baby's head and you pulled. We broke the baby's clavicle and humerus getting them out. My favorite part of it was the doctor putting her foot up on the edge of the bed to pull. Ooh. Yeah. You've had a very similar experience to several medics I've talked to. So you were trained as a combat medic and then immediately went somewhere that had zero to do with combat. Yep. So how was it getting to your first line unit? How long you been in and what was your rank by that point? So I had been in at that point, I had been in just over three years and I got promoted to specialist on my way out the door. And so I got to my first line units was 182 field artillery up at Fort Hood. They don't exist anymore. And I got there and obviously they see a specialist coming in. You should know what to do yep. was, was the first exception. But, and I agree to a point, but if you've never been in a combat arms unit, you're not going to know everything to do. And so I got there and, you know, platoon sergeant sat me down, told me what he expected of me, asked me if I had any expectations. God, I remember Kacha was his name and asked me if I had any expectations or what I wanted to get out of being there. And I flat out told him, look, I'm just coming from a hospital, my first duty station. I kind of have an idea of what's going on here, but not really. And uh, boy, let me tell you, when, when you get somewhere and you automatically outrank people, 
for no apparent reason, they <laughs> treat you like ass. I had a very similar experience. I mean, I was in a line unit in Korea, but I came from Korea to the 506. Yep, yep. Didn't have a deployment patch, and I've got privates going, oh, you don't get deployment patches in Korea? You haven't been to war? And they talked down to me all, and I tried to defend myself one time. Oh, wow. Yep. How long did it take you to start getting a feel for the field artillery and felt like you were a field soldier again? I didn't really, I'll put it to you this way. It, it was, it was a different world, obviously, okay. you know, even being in the infantry with you guys, it was a different world at that point because I got there, like I signed in, I hadn't even went to CIF yet. Back in the day, you didn't go to CIF until you'd already gotten to your unit. You get it at reception. So I got there and I signed into my unit and I was supposed to go to CIF the next morning. The first thing is I went to my battery headquarters and I went in to go meet whoever was there so I could, you know, sign in and sign, do paperwork and stuff like that. And there was a group of fisters and they were called the Colt Platoon. So these were the best fisters in the entire division yep. in this platoon. And I got there and their platoon sergeant had come in from the field for something. They were in the field and he saw me and he's like, Hey, what are you doing? And I was like, well, Hey, I just got here. I'm a medic. And he's like, Oh, that's outstanding. We need a medic. <laughs> Get your shit. I'll be picking you up at nine o'clock tomorrow morning to take you out to the field. I'm like, okay, uh, well, it'll have to be a little bit later. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, I go to CIF tomorrow morning. Oh, okay. Well, when you're done with CIF, you bring your stuff here and you'd be ready to go to the field. Roger. So I got there and I got all my stuff and I set my stuff up and I met him back at the uh, battery. We went out. Jesus Christ. I don't think a platoon in 506 trained the way these Colt platoon trained. My first day, 25 miles to, oh, no. to an extraction, they, 25 miles to an extraction on a helo to uh, fly for about 45 minutes around Fort Hood and get dropped off somewhere else and then go attack the actual firing batteries. Yeah, you're, you're also in a unique position that I want to ask you about because, of course, I remember 9-11, but I, we have soldiers now that they came in after. They've never, they don't remember it. Where were you during 9-11? Because I know you were in uniform. <laughs> yes, I was in uniform. I was actually stationed at Fort Hood, of all places. And I actually remember, if anybody listening here knows about Fort Hood, I was at Cow House Machine Gun Range. We were setting up to go hot. And I, I still remember to this day, you know, because cell phones were still, still kind of a new thing. And so my buddy got a call while we were sitting there. And they said, hey, a plane just flew into the, the south tower of the uh, thing. And we're like, oh, you know, thinking back you know, the plane that hit the Empire State Building many, many years ago. And so we're sitting there. I'm like, man, that's kind of messed up. Oh, so we're sitting there again. And the phone rings again. You know, we hadn't said we hadn't opened up and went hot. We didn't have any fires there yet. So nobody's going to get mad about the phones. So his phone rings again. And he calls and is like, hey, another plane just hit the North Tower. And we're like, what? No, no, fuck no. And then the, uh, the good old roach coat showed up. And he pulls in, opens all his doors, and cranks the radio up, which is unusual for the roach coach. And uh, then he comes around and starts opening the sign. So we're, we're getting snacks and drinks and stuff. And we start listening. And sure enough, they're talking about it. And then we finally hear about the Pentagon getting hit at that time. And we still didn't have any active fires yet. I think the first ones were getting ready to come through the gate at the time. And uh, so we got a hold of uh, the uh, RSO. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got a hold of them and told him, Hey, you need to come check this out. And so he called back to the rear and got guidance from a uh, battalion from the S3 shop. We went ahead and closed those range down and went back. And mind you, I had been at work since four o'clock that morning. You know yep. how it is on a range day. And we didn't get released till after nine o'clock that night. I got back and one of my, one of my friends, we had a field TV in the aid station that we always take out to the field with us. And so he pulled out the field TV and turned it on and we we're, we we're watching the videos over and over again of the planes hitting the towers. And it was just, you could feel everybody in the room's guts just drop. And uh, so we got released at nine o'clock that night. Platoon Sergeant told us, go home, get everything you own that's military related, put it in a bag, put it in your car now. Okay. Got home, did that three o'clock in the morning. The phone rang, get your ass to work now. 
I made it to work in about an hour and a half after my phone call. Some people didn't make it to work for at least another 12 hours because Ooh. Fort Hood, I, I think is the largest or the second largest amount of people in of any military installations worldwide. So imagine 17,000 people trying to get on base and now they're checking every vehicle that comes through the gate. Not to mention having an Abrams tank on one side and a Bradley on the other side facing in at you like this. So yeah, our last medic arrived 12 plus hours. So did you all think you were, did you think you were going like, this is it, yep. we're going? Yep. And how long, um, did, you've told me this story before, how long did you all stay? Well, I didn't, I didn't go personally. Basically what they did is they sent a, uh, not even if, I don't even think it was a full brigade element. It was a more of a task force element. Yep. And they went, they went to Turkey and I believe they sat there, sat there for six months, three to six months, somewhere in there. I think it was six. And then they came home. Yep. I mean, it was confusing. I'm assuming it was a confusing time. Nobody knew yeah. what was well, going on. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're in combat arms and in, in any form, any form of combat arms. So artillery, <laughs> reconnaissance, infantry, combat engineers, everybody was being told, be ready. Cause we're going, we're going, we're going. <laughs> I left the first calf went, I had, I had actually reenlisted to go back to Germany to a health clinic. And <laughs> I was, I was finishing my tour in Germany when a friend of mine showed up to Germany, who was, he was a, a fister. He showed up to Germany. He looked me up and he told me about their deployment that they just got back from. And I was like, man, it took them this long to go. And yeah. Well, back on the, back on the medical side of the house. So once 9-11 happened and everybody <laughs> thought we were gearing up for war, did anything change in your all's medical training or was medical training still a back seat to putting bullets down range? <laughs> Dude, in the, in the full 20 years that I served, medical training was always a backseat to putting bullets down range. That has never changed. Now, the only thing, the only thing that changed was the, I think the amount of people they wanted CLS yep. certified. They went, cause when I first, when I first uh, started teaching CLS, I, I want to say 10% of every platoon had to be CLS qualified. And I think when I got out, we went to damn near hundred percent had to be TC three qualified. So, uh, and now, I mean, it was a good idea, but the problem is, is I think I still, I think that even though a week is enough time to teach, it's not enough time to drill into their heads, what they need to pay attention to. Well, yeah. That's why we got away with the, the IVs and CLS because I can teach you to do an IV in a week, but I can't make you proficient at it. And if you don't practice it, yeah. I mean, you've met medics that <laughs> practice an IV in forever. And Jesus Christ. Yes. <laughs> There's some winners out there. I've met medics. who thought they were proficient in it. Oh yeah. I, I'll never say I, I, I was proficient, but I'll never say that I got a hundred percent. Oh no. I'll, there's two types of medics out there and this goes for civilian paramedics or army medics. <laughs> there's medics that have missed IVs and then there's liars. That's, that's pretty much it. If somebody tells yep. you they're a hundred percent stick, they either don't do it very often or they're flat out lying to you. Or they only stuck once and they got yep. it. <laughs> well, that's so, uh, I got to go through paramedic school, um, shoot about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I remember. Yep. So that's one thing I learned very, very quickly when I was working in the back of a civilian ambulance is it's one thing to treat patients that are 18 to 40 year old, healthy male and females. And it's a completely another thing to treat 80 year old nursing home patients or dialysis patients or all of these other issues that we don't deal with, especially IVs when they've got paper thin skin. Oh, well, I was going to say, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. When I was in the back of the truck with my paramedic preceptor, I think I missed my first six IV sticks in a row. And she was looking at me like, have you ever done this before? And I'm like, I promise I'm a professional. So going on that, especially being in the back of a vehicle, unfortunately, I don't think that that is practiced enough being in a moving vehicle, trying to, trying to do it because it would benefit us both in the military, on the battlefield, evacuating patients, especially if you're on the evac teams, but it would also benefit you in preparation for if you decide to continue doing the same job when you got out. Yep. Uh, we did it a few times when I was in, when I was in four, nine calf. So I, I've, I've done uh one, eight, two, three, eight, two, four, nine, and one five oh six. I was in four nine cav, which is a it's a complete reconnaissance uh, battalion. It's all cav scouts, and we like to practice our IVs 
into moving vehicles. And a lot of times we'd go blue light with fucking NVGs. And it, I had some, I had some real winners and I had some real losers. I, I would say, I would say I was probably less than 50% on my tries with those, but it was fun. It was good training. And I, I do think, I do think it benefited some of the soldiers more than they thought it would. So let's go back to your first, when was your first deployment? Combat or non-combat? I want to talk about your first combat casualty. Okay. So your first com or the first time you had a real world patient in theater. First time I, I had a real world patient in theater. Uh, my my first time actually having to do anything hectic. I, I I got extremely lucky. My truck got hit, but it didn't. It got hit, but it didn't get hit. If you know yeah. what I'm saying. So if if you've ever been in that that panic mode you check everybody the truck the truck got hit on the tc side there was me and a dismount in the back we were in an mrap me and a dismount in the back and i looked over at him and he he was fine i i i gave him a, like I, I reached i unbuckled myself i reached over grabbed him and pulled him just to get a glance at his back because that would have been the only thing that would have been the first place he would have got hurt yep so i i reached over i grabbed him i i Ran my arm down his back, no blood. Okay. I re reached up to the gunner. I grabbed him by his belt and I yanked him down. <laughs> obviously, it, obviously, he's probably freaked out. You know, these are, these are little tips and tricks that you have to learn or discover on your own. But I grabbed him by the belt and I yanked him down. And as he's looking at me with his face of confusion, I put my hands on top of his Kevlar. And as he pushed up, it allowed me to sweep him for blood. And so, you know, pull down and then grab. And then as he's going up to sweep, okay, no blood, perfect. Then I bumped his arms out of the way because I had to get over, the, over the, the gunner stand to the TC. And I looked at the TC, and he gave me that look as if you touch me, I'm going to kill you. So I yanked him by his uh, collar over right quick and I reached around him and just, okay. And because the comms got messed up. So what, comms didn't work? Comms never worked. No, well, oddly enough, comms were working in the truck until it happened. And so there's that. My first, I, I went to Fob Falcon in, in South Baghdad. <clears throat> they got hit constantly. It was the stupidest stuff. They could roll out the gate. One, one convoy can roll out the gate. Nothing happened. And a convoy comes in right behind them and an IED goes off. Yep. It's like, how did that happen? You guys, there's like a 30 second delay and they went over the same spots. Uh, so I was at Fob Falcon. This was my first time dealing with an actual combat casualty. So I, we went to Fob Falcon to, to do some stuff. And I, I went by the aid station because I was a nosy fuck. And I went by the aid station just to get an idea of how they worked and what they were doing. Cause our aid station was very small. They had, they actually had a uh, Charlie med there. Okay. So they had much more capabilities than you. Yeah, all they had that. more capabilities, but they were further off from our main brigade elements. So I went and checked it out. I knew some people there. We were talking and I was getting a kind of a, a run around, a, a rundown of how everything worked there, their patient flow and all that kind of stuff. And it was good. It was a good little setup and radio came over and they're, Hey, we blah, blah, blah. Vehicle coming in the gate, got hit with an EFP. The EFPs were still new to us at the time. Yep. They called and they said four casualties. The, the driver was a casualty, but he was still able to drive what was left of the vehicle. So they pull in and I just remember seeing what was left of the gunner. And unless you've actually seen stuff like that, you're never physically or mentally prepared for yep. the truck was ripped from the bottom TC side all the way up through the top driver's side. Cause it was, I think they said it was a, a 15 inch, which was surprised it left that much yeah. of the truck intact. So, <clears throat> but the shrapnel got the TC killed the gunner, got the driver and got the dismount in the back. I got out there to, you know, cause you're a medic, you're going to try and help wherever oh, yeah. you can. And so unfortunately, because I wasn't part of their actual staff, I couldn't be in their trauma bed, their trauma beds. And that's cool. I got, I, I watched that from afar, but mostly I ended up helping with the remains okay. uh, of that first one. Now when, when that initially happened and you said like, cause we all, we all want to help medic mode kicks in. 
did you feel like AIT had prepared you or your training up at that point prepared you to handle these casualties? I know you were going to do whatever you could, but did you feel confident in your abilities? I, I feel, I feel that my training, um, prepared me enough to be able to sit and look at what was going on and try and figure out what I could do. <clears throat> but I think, I think medics in all aspects need to cross train more. Like we, we did it when we were, where was that? When we went to that little area and we went and checked out. Oh, are you talking about when we went to Fort Chaffee with the national guard? Yeah, but we went and checked out their. They, we went and checked out their whole their cache. Yep, they set up all that, that stuff. Full cache, and they gave us mm -hmm. a tour of the place. That was a good yep. time. Yeah, so I think I think especially line medics, and I think there's a facility in New York that does this for for at least for Fort Drum, that you start off as the line medic, you receive your casualty, and you go through every phase of care with the casualty. I'm going to have to look into that because I know the Army, we have a program now called the SMART program. I'm not sure what SMART stands for, but they sent some of my medics from my small MTF. They get to go to Cincinnati to the hospitals and they get two weeks working in a civilian hospital just so they can. It's not the same as, you know, following through the cash and the Charlie Med, but it's, it's aligning us with our partners. I honestly think that we should be a little bit more cross-trained because, yes, trauma is our number one priority. That should be our number one priority, trauma and taking care of the soldiers that we work with day to day, but knowing how to, knowing what to expect and how to uh, actually work at the, the next level facility, I always thought was important because what happens if you go, like what happens if you, you did something and there's no way to correct it until surgery. And now you have to sit there and hold the patient. You know, I know, I know most of the time, most of the time we hear about it, it's jokingly from some, from some stupid fake TV show where I stuck my hand in to stop the bleeding and now I couldn't move it. Yep. But what happens if that really happens? You don't know. And now you're stuck and you know, you medics, medics should, you should be able to go talk to at least every E4 and above and say, what are the steps of care from point of injury till the patient is done yeah all the way to the back to the states and the roll um, forward yeah because I, I ran into that i didn't understand when we checked out that cash i didn't know how many beds they i didn't understand what their capabilities were i knew they had doctors and i knew they had x-ray in a lab but i didn't understand what it looked like or how many patients they so if we say we took 32 casualties in the 506 and we're our aid stations completely overran well, I need to know how many of the role two can take because maybe they can't even take all of these. Patients. Yeah. Now, granted, uh, from where you and I, from our perspectives when we served, that wasn't our job to know. That was the platoon sergeant's job and the platoon leader's job. Teach, learn one up, teach yep. two down. Just like you it just is, said, because what would happen? Yeah, something happened. And hey, hey, Simmons, you're the platoon leader. Yep. Hey, Aaron, you're the platoon sergeant. And then yep. you and me have no clue what's going on. Yeah. So there, there's there's a lot of aspects that, and every every medic has a thought process of what could be made better to do their job. And so one of the ones I always had a question about that kind of sort of got fixed, I think, going into my second deployment was why I never understood why uh, you didn't get live tissue lab training until you were going to be knock. And it, it irked me because why the fuck does, why does the staff sergeant need to know how to treat casualties in that sense? When at that point, most of the time, when you become a staff sergeant, you're yeah. done. You're, you're, you're training other medics and you're doing more paperwork. So why do you get that live tissue lab training while the guys who are actually need it don't understand anything about it? Well, they kind of fixed that going to uh, uh, my second deployment. They started doing the BCT three. Yeah, yes. should have been yep BCT three. They should have came to you all prior to deployment mm -hmm. to give yep. you all a train up. So yeah, and, that's helped and, a lot. And it no, it did. I, I felt at that time when I actually went through that, I after some of the things I saw on the first appointment, which I'm not going to bolster my deployments. My deployments weren't all like, ah, oh, it's combat everywhere. No, most of, the, most of the time our deployment was sitting on our thumbs. Yep, staring out into the middle of nowhere waiting to go home. Well, we had Baghdad to look at, but, you know. Oh, see, I didn't have um, Baghdad. I had a mountain in the distance. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I wanted to go to Afghanistan. So 
I, I never understood it. So then they, they started the BCT3 and I got to do the training and I felt more prepared. Yeah, you felt more confident. It I built. felt more confident in my abilities. Yep. You know, they, yeah, we won't discuss the live tissue labs. Yep. Because. Well, they've actually, so from my understanding, we're toning down the live tissue labs because of the new simulation mannequins. We have some mannequins that do some amazing things now. I've seen it, yeah. Yeah, it allows you to get that hands-on training. I don't think anything is ever going to replace live tissue. But one thing that you can do that I tried to implement at one of my prior duty stations is getting our medics out with our civilian counterparts in the back of the ambulance. Cause yep. you're going to treat real world pay. If we could have got our medics down to Nashville, they probably would have sh treated a gunshot wound or two in Nashville. Yeah. We, we try. I, see, I remember, um, Sergeant Anderson, yep. the first Sergeant Anderson, when he got us the, when he got us the, the morgue. That's good training, but it's hard to come by. Yeah. Well, it's not as hard. I'm not going to say it, it. Yes, you're right. It is hard, but it's mostly hard because people don't try enough. Now, I'm not saying you didn't try enough, but leadership doesn't try enough because they've got 15 million other things to yep. do. And uh, that's why that's one of the things I did like about where we were together is that if we wanted to do something as a platoon, as long as you took the initiative or I took the initiative, the platoon sergeant would bless off on it. Yep. And once the platoon sergeant blessed off on it, he would take that information and sell it to the chain of command. And they'd be like, oh, that's wonderful. Yep. You know? Well, you got to make it sound like it was their idea. You make yeah. it sound like it was their idea and you're golden. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's what I try to impart on the younger leadership is you got to take that initiative and just – try to knock it out. Worst thing they're going to do is tell, how many times do we get told no? We get told no I, all the time, yep. but you just keep driving on. Yep. That's but all you, you can do. You got you to gotta find, you got to find that uh, bare minimum. Is it, hey, uh, we want to do this. And I got a group that said that they could do it if you get permission. Yep. If you, I, I'm a big believer. If you wait on big army to spoon feed you the answer, you're going to starve to death long before yep, you get oh, it. Yes, definitely. Uh, so, um, we talked about your deployment. We've talked about your casualties you've treated and your training. You mentioned it earlier, um, getting proficient in skills because you may do it in the civilian world. Now I know you personally, so I know what your plans are after the army and it was nothing medical. What was it that drove you away from medicine in the civilian world? That was like, Nope, not going to do that. <laughs> okay. So I, I feel that I've, I've seen enough in that side of the house that I don't want to see anything more. And that's that's one of my major driving factors of not going into it. Because normally what I hear from medics are, I got out and I didn't want to be anything in the civilian world because all I have is this little EMTB card. It's yeah, not and that's, worth anything. And, that's, and you can push to be more even while you're in. I mean, you, you've went and got your paramedic certification. And I know, I know a few medics who've actually went on and become doctors, yep. PAs. And actually, I have... One, I have one friend who, he laughed, he always laughed at me because I didn't make it through x-ray tech school and come to find out he was working on his x-ray tech certification. And then once he finished that, he found a way to become an x-ray transfer from a medic to x-ray tech in the army yep. without having to go through all the schooling. He has his, he has his national certifications for it. And uh, let me tell you, those dudes make some money on call. Oh, yeah. Respiratory techs, x-ray techs, lab techs, everybody but medics. Yeah. Um, he was he was making like his his weekend paycheck was coming out more than my monthly paycheck. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's a, that's an um, argument. That's an argument on the civilian side about the, yeah, the pay the difference pay. between. EMS yeah. Well, he but he was he was he was active duty. He got permission to be on call for a civilian hospital on oh, the weekends. Yeah. There's so yeah. many of them here in San Antonio that are respiratory techs and mm -hmm. then they moonlight on the weekend and they make. I'm sure I'm sure yeah. they're uh, I'm sure some of them are uh, out doing uh, stuff for the stuff yep. going on now. Yeah, they're up in New York. I know so, I have some friends that are up in New York right now making forty five. $50 an hour. Everybody always complains because, well, that's not going to prepare me for the civilian world or this or that. Or the, you know, there we've heard, we've heard all the excuses. You are not going to be prepared for getting out of the army unless you prepare yourself. Nobody is going to prepare you. That's what I try to tell these junior medics today is we have to check our ego at the door when we get out. Cause you've done some things. I've done some things medically, <clears throat> but we don't have the education to back it up. So you can't really just walk in the civilian world and be like, I'm a doctor. Nobody's going to listen to you. If you want to be a doctor, go to medical school. If you want to be a PA, go to PA school. If you want to be a paramedic, go to paramedics. Nobody owes us anything getting out of the military. Nobody owes me a job. Nobody owes me a credential. Yep. 
Shit, they don't even know it's a free lunch. No, nope, they don't oh, owe us anything. You signed, so, you signed on the dotted line for a paycheck, guy. Yes, you did. So <laughs> what advice do you have for these junior medics down the hill in AIT right now? What, what is one thing? If, if Sergeant Simmons could walk into AIT and change something today, what would you change? So it's been a couple of years since I got out. So I, I think one of the biggest issues for people coming in as I was getting out was, was a lack of discipline. There's drill sergeants in AIT again. We brought yeah. drill sergeants back to bring back that discipline. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure it'll I'm sure it'll affect it somehow. But I I, I think I, it's it's very hard for me to say because the amount of training they're getting nowadays compared to what I got when I was in. But I would I would honestly say that they need to pay attention in their their clinicals because you're not always going to be on the line. Yep. Yeah, what I like so, to say is we're really good at teaching medics the how to do something. We're really, really why. bad at the why we're doing. And yeah. I do understand when you're when you're pushing 400 kids through every month and a half to two months, it's really hard to get everybody yeah. on board with the. So we understand but, why, but we got to fix that at the line unit. Yeah, well, it it has to be fixed, and I'm not saying that it's a giant responsibility of the schoolhouse yeah. to teach it, but I do believe that they can they can help uptake the control of it. So part of that paramedic program that, that's going on right now at the Medsco is the first, very first block of instruction they get is AMP one and two. They get college AMP one and two, and maybe down the hill, they should be getting college level AMP. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to see what they do in the future, but I do believe everybody needs to have a better understanding of what's yeah. going on. on the and it's, they, they need to understand the, the AMP a little bit better. I think we had one of the best programs for getting new people in. You remember? Oh yeah. Take them to the back. Take them to the back. <laughs> and then uh, we did get accused of what they say. We had an LT one time that said it was possible hazing. It wasn't hazing. We were training. Yeah. There, there's a huge difference. You, you shouldn't be afraid to conduct realistic training because you're going to get in trouble for hazing. Yeah. Just make sure everybody's on the same page. Yep. You've got a, you've got a risk assessment. Your PA. That happened while I was there. Yep. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. Yeah, no, but that, you know, honestly, because we'd never done that anywhere else. That's, uh, it's it's great because, you know, it's going to shake, it's going to shake the person up a little bit. Oh, yeah. So real but, quick, what, what Simmons is talking about here is when we used to get a new medic to our line unit, as soon as we would pick them up from S1 and they would come through the door, literally, as soon as they would hit the back doors of the aid station, start exercising, uh, side straddle hops, push-ups, like we, we would start, we were just wearing them out. We, we wanted to get their heart rate up yep. and out of breath and get them confused. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they were shocked because they'd never met us before. And this last, what, maybe 10, 15 minutes tops. It wasn't yeah. crazy. We didn't do this for hours. But then as soon as they were done, another medic would take his, uh, his jacket top off, lay down. We would drop all the IV supplies and say, you have two minutes, start an IV, go. And it would give you a real quick assessment of how this person performed under stress because they were stressed <laughs> they were definitely stressed and, and you know we we would speak to them in louder than normal tones yes and <laughs> yes and some performed flawlessly and you knew okay so where i need to start with his training he's a little bit farther along and some people just froze and you're like okay now we need to start all the way at the bottom with this with soldier yep. yep and that um, actually i don't know who has started that training but so i got i got to the 506 in 2000 the beginning of 2012, I want to say it was January 12, and that happened to me. As soon as I walked in the door, I got there with another medic. Same day, we got we got lit up. So they've been doing yeah. that practice long before I got there. So I don't know who started it, but I think it was a great idea. We got into it a couple of times, and then we had I forget who it was next door. It's when we moved to our new training or our new aid station area. Yeah, whatever building was next door sent a lieutenant over because we were being too loud. Oh, that was the other. That was the other uh, part of another battalion. Yeah, it was a com it was a completely different unit. I don't even know who they were, but we were being too loud for their liking. <laughs> okay, close your ears, buddy. <laughs> yeah, good. Hey, we're just training. That's all we're doing. I do miss that. I think we trained very, very well in that. That was that was great training, and then uh, we went out and set up the the aid station like yep. like like we you know were supposed to do. Yep, we jumped it. We jumped the aid station literally, and that was that was great experience, great training. And I hated the fact that when they, when the R.H. Simmons, you're in charge of setting this up. I'm like, you want me to set up an aid station, a tent that I've never set up before in some kind of record time. <laughs> because I'm sorry, when you're in, when, when you're in the cab, when you grow up in the cab, all your tents are lightweight frames. 
You didn't have we're the not, GP medium. Not in the infantry where we get the heavy tent. The heavy tents. We had lightweight. Like if it rolls right off of the back of the vehicle. Okay. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Most of our most of our tents were like that. We had the bigger ones, but they also had the same kind of frames. Yeah, when I was in when I was in armor in Korea, we had a tent that was attached to the back of a five seven seven, and you would just roll it right out, pop your tents up, and it was attached to the five seven seven. But but I I enjoyed it because you know it's a, oh but I I think we all figured out how as a team we could get set up so damn fast. Oh yeah, we were good. Like, and, everybody- but a lot of people don't practice that anymore. No. They don't. Well, your fight and my fight was coin. We always went to Iraq, Afghanistan. We always fell in on a preposition, fob or cop, mm-hmm. fell in on somebody else's. You never took your – you would take your MES sets, but you wouldn't take your tents. You didn't take your FLAs. You didn't take any of your equipment. But in that next fight, that peer-to-peer fight, that's what we need to practice because you are going to yeah. be – you are going to be jumping an aid station. Yeah, and something else that needs to be prepped for because 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 of the way we fought this last fight, it, it's, a, it, it's another skill long lost. So – Let's say able company goes in to secure an area and you know, you know, you know, you're going to have casualties in this area. And so able company goes in the aid station pushes a small element up. So it, 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 it's one of those huge operations. You get inner cordon, outer cordon. So your line medics are going to support the company on the inner cordon where the battle is. The outer cordon, you're going to have an evac and a small element like the PA and like two medics to support him. And then your Charlie med is, you know, is going to have that asset that pushes forward to assist you beyond the PA. Like if you, if the PA gets overrun with casualties, then that Charlie med element is going to be there that they could push those elements back to them, the casualties back to them. It's, um, I used to have it. I think I left it at the aid station when I, when I got out, when I retired, but it was actually the medical platoon leader's guide to oh, the handbook. It wasn't a handbook. It was literally like two inches thick. And it was everything the platoon, the medical platoon leader needed to know about setting up all the different aspects of evac. It had everything down to how the, how your line medic would evac back to the first casualty collection point all the way back to how you were evacing casualties from Charlie med to Germany. Yep. And it, so it was that whole book and it had every, and it was an old book. So it was out of date, but well, uh, that, that brings me back to something else. Cause what's old is new again. So my mm-hmm. whole, my whole military career, we've been training for coin counterinsurgency. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. All we've ever done. You, however, if you came in in 96, you all weren't training for coin in the beginning. You were Front still training that fr- force so, on force. So from a medical point of view, how did that, how did your training change from 96 to, to 2000? Cause we went to coin somewhere around 2001. That's where everything changed for us. Yeah. My first unit, we, it was all uh, force on force. Yep. It's basically two, two lines just moving at each other to fight. And obviously, you know, there were some, there were some worries about getting flanked. You know, you, you practice all the, how to prepare yourself for a flank and all that kind of stuff. But you all were um, jumping your aid state. Y'all were moving an aid station. Yeah. When, when they, when they called, you would literally get the word and you'd have, they would tell you flat out, Hey, jumping at this time, you need to be in line at this time. And so you literally 10 to 15 minutes to break down and pack your aid station in a vehicle, get in your vehicles and get in line to go. Yeah, I think we're gonna to have to go back to that level of training because that's that's yeah. Like well, that's 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 what I'm going to because the the echelons of care during your battles uh, that we'll just talk about use 506 as a as an example. Able Company, if they're going to take an an area and they that they know nothing about, like this is their first time going in. We hear it's a hot area, but we don't know yet. So they're going to look, they're going to have their map of the area because you can always get that overhead reconnaissance. Yep. Um, they're going to have their map and they're going to say, hey, this is this is this and this. And they're going to, okay, we're going to come in from these directions. We're going to do this. They're going to have what a medic, what, what, how many medics do they have? Like four, five, four? They should have four. You have your senior line medic and your three <laughs> platoon medics. Okay. So your platoon medics obviously are going to run with their platoon, mm-hmm. their platoons. And their platoons are going to come in from their, their different angles. And then your, your senior medic is going to stay with first sergeant. And uh, he's going to prepare 
for, he's going to be prepared for going and getting casualties so that the platoons don't have to stop what they're doing and bring the casualties out. And then, so, so they're coming in first sergeant's here has the medic and the medic, the senior medic, and he's going to be prepared to move around to get casualties as needed so that the platoons can continue their mission without fail. So once he has casualties that need to go, now the aid station needs to have someone further out. Sometimes it's the evac section with part of the treatment section. And so you're, you're talking about the PA because there are some things you might want the PA on the ground for at that point in time. And sometimes, now, sometimes it was just that. It was the PA with part of the, with, uh, the PA with the evac section moving forward to collect casualties from the senior medic of that company. Sometimes it was an, uh, an offensive that's large enough that the whole battalion is actually operating on, on the offensive going into this AO. And so what you do is, or what, what you used to do, they would go in, the, the battalion would actually say, hey, we're setting up the makeshift aid station here. It's going to have the PA part of the treatment team, the evac section, and then you would call your Charlie Med element, and then they would push an element forward to support you, but it would not go all the way up to your aid station. So sometimes you have an AXP, and sometimes they actually have an aid station set up further to take care of what you can't take care of. And then you did have your – the AXPs and EXPs, when we practiced with them, so like when we went to NTC at Fort in California – yeah, Fort Irwin. Never had to go there, thank goodness. Some of the best times and some of the worst times. I like Fort Irwin better than I liked the, the other place. Uh, Fort, Fort Polk for JRTC. Anything else you want anybody to know or anything else you'd like to add? I think, I honestly think that medics as a whole need to learn learn to work together better. Some of us could work very well with some. Some of us in some places, and I'm not going to say like 506. I think I think we as a whole were very cohesive. Some of the other places I've been started off, you think it's cohesive, and then it just falls apart like like dry rotted bread. And because when you go to these line units, you have to watch. We have to watch each other's backs. So they they need to. Uh, understand that you might not like the other medic as much as you think you do, but you're going to want his help someday. And especially when it comes down to that, in a lot of places, medics are redheaded stepchildren. And also they need to uh, learn the other people in their community. Like, and I say that as in your brigade, for instance, regardless of what you think, oh, I'm in, I'm in 506 infantry. I'm never going to worry about now, you're going to have to work with the medics over at the Charlie Med or, or at whoever the other battalions were. You're going to have to work with them. And so they need to learn to how be a cohesive unit. Well, not just necessarily cohesive, but God, what is it? Learn to, Dangle did it very well. He knew everybody. <clears throat> network and coordinate. Network. Okay. They network. need to network with the other battalions because you're going to need stuff. And Remember with like our Charlie Med, I had to get stuff from them several times in order for us to accomplish our mission. Oh, yeah. And then how many times did I have to go go over to medical supply to, to get stuff fixed so that we could have the, the bandages and the chest seals and all that stuff? I'll never forget, and it was right before you retired, you were telling a group of us, because of course you'd been in, you retired at 20, so you've been many more units than I had. I'd only been in two units at that point. I'd been in 172 Armor and 1506. And I spent six and a half years in the 506. You told us that you had never been in a unit like that. And we didn't know any better because that's the only unit we'd been in when we were talking about our cohesiveness and how we worked as a unit. And I was like, oh, Simmons doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, this is the Army. And then I PCSed away, and I have never seen a unit like that again, a cohesive unit. So I thought you were crazy when you told it to me. But it's been what, five, six years now? And you were dead on. That. And I don't know how you build another unit like that. I don't know what was special about us. I think what it was is some of you were uh, still young in your career. And the the ability to accept advice was was one thing. Like, like you, for instance, you were always able to accept advice and then question it. I'm not saying that if I just came and gave you advice, you were like, oh, that sounds like, ah. Uh. <laughs> but you would say, okay, that sounds like a good idea, but, and then some people, so Perez was fun when he, when he needed to be, and he was a hard ass when he needed to be. Oh yeah. <laughs> when he took uh, over as our platoon sergeant, like he could put his boot down. 
When I first joined, there was a cohesiveness, like made ourselves a family. My first combat arms unit, when the guys were going to Austin from Fort Hood for the weekend, oh, you're going, regardless if you want to go or not, you're going. <laughs> they would literally, they, they threatened me one time. I, I, was, I, I was tired. I wanted to stay in. It was a Friday night and got the bang on my door. I'm sitting there in like boxers and a t-shirt, eating some popcorn, watching yep. a movie. And they're like, hey, doc, we're going to Austin. I'm like, so? And like, you're going to Austin. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And they're like, you got five minutes to get dressed else you're going in whatever you're wearing. And sure enough, or if you got in a fight, if you, if you went somewhere like Austin and you got in a fight, everybody that was there with you was getting in a fight. I had no idea why punches were getting thrown, but you're right there in the middle of it. Oh no, I was, the last time that happened with me, I was the reason punches were getting thrown. <laughs> I, I said hi to somebody. And somebody acted like I was trying to talk to their girl. I'm like, nope. (laughs) That's what I thought the Army was because we had that in Korea because we all lived in the barracks together. Mm -hmm. Married, not married, we all lived together. And it was the same way. Friday night would roll around and somebody would stick their head out and be like, y'all got five minutes to lock them up and we're heading out. We'd roll 20 deep. Like there was camaraderie. Yeah, that camaraderie. I remember that camaraderie and I remember watching it disappear throughout my career. And oddly enough, as much as I didn't want to go, I didn't want to PCS to Fort Campbell for yeah. my last duty station. I'm glad I did because it, it reminded you guys reminded me. Well, we didn't know what, any better. We were just doing what we were taught to yeah, do. So. Yeah, and, but nobody, but but I wasn't lying when I said it's not there anywhere else in and the army. I, like I said, I thought you were crazy, and then I moved on, and I was like, "Where's? Aren't we all the army?" And they're like, "Nope." And I'm like, "Oh, okay. I see how it is. We'll stab <laughs> each other in the back." Mm-hmm. If anyone you know wants to share their story about military medicine, reach out to me at careunderfire68w at gmail.com or on Instagram at care underscore under underscore fire underscore. I hope you all follow along as my podcast grows. Open a book, get studying, change your socks. This has been Care Under Fire.